0: All right. Well, I want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel and to our new series tonight starting uh, on how to read and understand the Bible. And let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll uh, we'll dive in. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight to uh, just to uh, shift gears and really uh, learn how to correctly handle your word. We need uh, your word as our guidepost uh, more than ever before in these unsettling times. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be really an edifying and beneficial uh, series and that as we work through uh, all of this material in the weeks to come, that it would uh, help us uh, to get to know you better because we know how to handle your word better. We pray that it would strengthen our faith. We pray that if there's anybody uh, here or watching or watching the videos later uh, that doesn't know you, they would be reminded of how you've revealed yourself to us in your word and how you've revealed the good news in your word. And they might come to faith as a result of this study. So we give you this time uh, tonight and pray that you would uh, just use it uh, as always for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So just want to make a couple of quick announcements and then uh, then dive in. So obviously we are on a new series now in case anybody didn't get uh, the word, but the entire uh, What in the World is Going On series is now available and we're planning to just leave it up for a while. Uh, you can go to notbyworks.org in the videos menu, click on what in the world is going on, all eight videos are there, so uh, continue to spread the word about that, it's good information it's important information and uh, that's available there for you totally for free for people to to watch Um, also want to mention that as we start this new series, I hate to to start and then have to break one week right away, but the nature of my schedule is such I'm going to be leaving next Monday to go to Duluth to speak at the annual Duluth Bible Conference. So we will not meet next week on Wednesday, uh, the 6th of October. So please mark your calendars. We'll send out a reminder and it'll be in the newsletter and so forth. But just for those who may not be here at Plum Creek Chapel, just want to make sure you make note of that. So after tonight... Our next session in this series, part two, is going to be on Wednesday, October 13th. So two weeks from uh, from tonight. So we're talking obviously about the Bible. You, you know you sit down at your desk and uh, or your table or whatever it might be, and you open your Bible, and then what? That that's really the question. Um, there have been uh, so many uh, misunderstandings about the nature of the Bible through the centuries, Uh, just about everybody, even if they're not a believer, even if they're from another religion, understands that there's something unique about the Bible. It is considered even by secularists to be a sacred book. Um, And I think because of its unique nature and its uh, profound influence through the ages, uh, people have the mistaken notion that it is uh, difficult to understand. Uh, in fact, I was talking to somebody who called uh, yesterday, the, the not by works line, and um, they, we, had, we ended up having a, a long, lengthy conversation, and they commented, made the comment, you know, uh, everybody looks at the Bible and comes up with different interpretations. And uh, I was able, in the course of the conversation, to share the gospel and talk about a lot of things they called based on the What in the World is Going On series. They had some things they wanted to talk about with that. But when they made that comment, I thought, you know, how many times have I heard that through the years? That when you try to make a point based on the teaching of God's word, inevitably people will say, well, that's just your opinion or you know nobody really knows for sure everybody has their own interpretation of the bible and and what a shame because we don't really do that with other books that are written in you know defined languages i mean in general even though we don't always practice it this way we understand that words mean things and that uh, when you read a book the author was intending to communicate something and we kind of threw the the, the, the grammar and the syntax. We arrive at the intended meaning of what the words on the page say. You know, no one, uh, uh, you know, p- pulls up to a stop sign and says, s-t-o-p. I wonder what that means. They, they kind of know what it means. Nobody says, well, you know, there are multiple interpretations of that word. Now, obviously in practice, we act like there's multiple interpretations. Sometimes it may mean slow down or roll roll slowly or, you know, ignore it altogether. together. Um, But in general, people understand that words mean things, even though in our culture we've deconstructed language entirely and and made words mean something entirely different than what they should. But somehow when it comes to the Bible, many Christians treat it as if it were some secret, mystical, coded message that you have to solve. And only the most enlightened and creative can, can really pull out of these words on the page you know, what it really means, that you have to be super spiritual. And, you know, part of that is because of uh, the influence of uh, Roman Catholicism, which for many, many centuries uh, taught and still teaches today that only the priests can really correctly interpret the Bible and that uh, individual Christians need not waste their time reading it because, uh, you, you know, you don't know. Uh, what it says, and nor should you. I think I've told this story before, but I remember being in the seventh grade and going on a field trip with our biology class, uh, probably to the Museum of Natural History in New York City, because we did that, took field trips there all the time. I grew up in grade school and junior high in Connecticut, and uh, my biology teacher, I'll never forget her name name is Mrs. Lindsay. she was Catholic like many people in the Northeast, and uh, at that young age I still carried my Bible to school every day, you know, and um, was involved in Christian Club at the the public school, and so anyway, I had my Bible on the bus seat in this field trip, and uh, I was sitting up close to the front, and right behind her. And at one point, she turned around and she said, "Why are you? Why do you carry your Bible?" And I said, "Oh, I just like to read it. I forget what I said exactly, but I'll never forget." She said, "Well, you know, you can't understand it." That's what she said. You can't understand it. I didn't know then that that was kind of Roman Catholic dogma. Uh, but uh, I understand perfectly why she said that, because that's the way she had been uh, taught. Uh, but when we mishandle the Bible, or we have a misunderstanding about the fact that it can even be understood plainly, then really, you know, we are missing the value of it altogether. Because if you don't, if you don't correctly handle it, and you think of it as some kind of a mystical book that only the most enlightened can understand, then what value is that to you? But we hold in our hand, when we hold the Bible, the solutions to every problem in the world. I mean, think about it. God's Word tells us that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We know that it provides the solution to the most fundamental need of all of mankind, and that is forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The only way that we can have any hope of being made right once again with our Creator is through the, the, the Word of God that communicates the Gospel. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. But not only does it hold the solution to our greatest problem, our sin problem, but it holds the solution to everything that life may throw our way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, uh, in our series Through Psalms, we spent uh, the Sunday morning message talking about the value of God's word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path from Psalm 119. And so because the Bible is mishandled and mistreated and in many cases abused, it has really become sort of like an icon or just an embodiment of ideas rather than the living and active word of God that cuts like a two-edged a sword. So it is really important that we who claim to know the Lord by faith, and I hope everyone in this room and anybody that may be watching uh, knows the Lord, I hope there's been a time in your life when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Because once you've done that, according to Scripture, you become reborn, you're made spiritually alive, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, and then the Holy Spirit uh, through the w- written Word of God is able to help mold and guide you through life. Apart from regeneration, apart from being born again by faith in Christ, uh, everyone's like a, a ship to drift at sea without any true north, without anything to guide them. And, but the Bible gives us that, uh, that guidance. So 3,800 times the Bible says, thus, say, thus saith the Lord, or Thus says the Lord. Uh, it truly is, uh, the very word of God, and in this series, I want to go slow. I want to kind of, um, you know, take our time setting the stage, and then, you know, working through really what is the Bible. A lot of people, uh, and I, and I forgive me for those of you that maybe have studied this before and are, are eager to dive right into some principles of hermeneutics. You know, how to study the Bible. Uh, be patient. We'll we'll get there. But I want to be sure that we don't leave anybody behind, and I want to make sure that we really. Understand what this book is. You know what are how is it organized? How is it broken down? What's the difference between say Jeremiah, where I just opened, and say the Gospel of Luke? See, most people think of the Bible as just kind of one book, and they really don't even understand how God, the Creator of the universe, revealed Himself to us uh, through the Word of God. So we're gonna we're gonna go uh, slow, uh, but we will get to those really. Uh, important principles. Uh, I'm going to at some point give you 24 rules for interpreting Scripture that I think are universal and foundational. Uh, but we're going to also get into some uh, interactive things and looking at, you know, figures of speech. What are some ways that the Bible uses figures of speech? Uh, uh, what are some, uh, uh, you know, idioms? And uh, what about genre? You know, what, like I said, what's the difference between an Old Testament prophetic book and a New Testament gospel book or Old Testament Pentateuch versus the New Testament epistle. What are the What are the differences? So we're going to get into all that. But let's, uh, and by the way, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Um, I want this to be open form. If you have a question or a comment or a thought, feel free to raise your hand at any time, unlike my last series where we tried to save questions to the end um, tonight and and henceforth in this series is we want to be more of an interactive study so uh, you're not interrupting me at all if you raise your hand except for gary no just kidding (laughs) can you compare the value of scripture to an unbeliever versus a spirit-filled believer great question and for those of you that are watching or watching the recorded video sometime later, I'm going to try to record, I mean, repeat the questions. Uh, You guys help me with that if I get so eager sometimes that I jump right into the answer. Remind me to repeat it because it wasn't working well when we tried to record it with a microphone. So the question is, what's the comparison of the value of Scripture for an unbeliever versus a believer who's filled with the Spirit, right? So obviously for an unbeliever, the value of the Word of God is that it presents the plan of salvation. It presents the Gospel. Again, Hebrews or Romans 10:17. so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Um, but for an unbeliever who does not have the Spirit, who is spiritually dead, still dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, they don't have that spiritual presence. You know, the, the Holy Spirit's indwelling to help them interact with the Word of God. And they can't even pray. To the to the Lord, the only prayer of an unbeliever that God hears is the prayer of faith, the, the expression of trusting Christ for salvation. I've talked about that before, but there are several passages that talk about that. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. For example, um, the Lord hears the prayers of the righteous, but He is far from the wicked. Those kinds of things. So, um, so for an unbeliever, uh, I believe unbelievers can understand the Bible. I don't think an unbeliever reads the book that reads the Bible translated in English and it's just gibberish. I think they can understand it because they understand subjects and nouns and so forth. In fact, uh, some of the best uh, scholars uh, that understand certain things like ancient Near Eastern culture or the Greco-Roman world or especially language scholars who are experts in the Greek language or the Hebrew language, uh, I have many commentaries on my shelf by people that are not believers. But it doesn't mean they don't have the intellectual ability to Understand the meaning of the words on the page. They just haven't embraced it and believed it to be true. So they can understand, an unbeliever can understand it, but it's not going to spiritually impact their lives until such time as by faith they've taken that initial step of trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. For a believer, completely different. It's the doctrine of illumination, or the the spiritual, the Holy Spirit's role in illumination, which is in helping us to welcome and embrace the teachings of Scripture and apply them to our lives, because we now see with a different perspective. So uh, the Holy Spirit, and we'll get into illumination somewhere, way down the road probably, but um, it's an important doctrine. I, I do not believe that the doctrine of illumination is the Holy Spirit's telling us what the Bible means. Sometimes you'll see that definition. Um, The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us what it means. If He did, we'd all understand it perfectly because we all have the same Holy Spirit. He's God. He's immutable. He's he's always the same. So it's self-evident that He doesn't tell us what it means. The doctrine of illumination doesn't mean that He gives us the meaning. It, It means that He helps us embrace it as true and connect the dots. So as we're reading Scripture, and those of you that study uh, Scripture routinely as a part of your Christian life, you can I'm certainly rel- certain you can relate to this, but you'll be reading the Scripture and another verse will come to mind. And so you'll flip over there. And then another verse comes to mind and you'll flip over there and you begin connecting the teachings of Scripture from different parts of the Bible. I believe that's the Holy Spirit helping lead and and, and guide us and, and, and then ultimately helping us apply it to our lives. So uh, on a spiritually reborn person, and you, you made the added qualifier, which is very important, of who is filled with the Spirit. Because if you're a carnal Christian, you may be a believer, but you're, you've, you're living in rebellion, you've, you've, you're backslidden, you're not walking with the Lord, you're walking in the flesh. Well, then you've kind of cut off the Spirit's activity you know, the Bible calls it quenching the spirit, grieving the spirit, those kinds of things. But using your phrase, if you're filled with the spirit, you're a believer walking right with the Lord, then the, the Bible can, can really cut deep. Hebrews 4.12 says it's like a two-edged sword that can separate soul from spirit, meaning separate that within us which is fleshly longing for the flesh from that which is longing for the spirit. Uh, and sometimes those two things are very closely intertwined. It's often... Difficult to tell what is really our own will and what is God's will sometimes, right? And and Hebrews 4:12 talks about how they're like joints and marrow sometimes, they're okay. so close together. So as a believer, the Spirit of God does spiritual—I mean, the Word of God does spiritual surgery on us all the time. So it has a profound impact day to day. But an unbeliever, it's the convicting work of the Spirit through the Word of God that says you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And only by trusting in Jesus can you be forgiven and have eternal life. So, does that help? Yeah. You may get into this uh, later, but how was it determined which books would be included in Scripture and which books would be excluded, like the Apocrypha? Yeah. So the question is, how was it determined which books would be included in the Bible and which ones would not, like the Apocrypha? So we absolutely are going to get into that. It's called the Doctrine of Canonicity. And uh, it, uh, the the uh, first of all, I would I would not word the question that way, because we did not determine which books are inspired. Who determined which books are inspired? God. So the doctrine of canonicity isn't isn't the uh, process whereby the church decided or determined which books would be in the Bible. The doctrine of canonicity is the process whereby the church discovered which books are inspired. They were inspired in and of themselves by God, the creator of the universe. It's kind of like panning for gold. You don't get to pan for gold and and pull up some fool's gold, I think they call it pyrite, and declare this is gold. I mean, it either is or it isn't. So canonicity is the process whereby the early church, under the guidance of the Spirit, in the same way that the writers of Scripture, 40 human authors over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages, were guided by the Holy Spirit to write the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit guided the early church to uncover and find that gold that God had revealed to the world. So, uh, so that's the short answer, but we'll get into it. I'm going to give you some of the uh, dates and stuff in the process of as the church uncovered it. Yeah? When do you think Job was discovered? And put into the, to the Bible so that's a good question the Old Testament Canon that's a very good question We know certainly by 300 BC 285 BC when the Septuagint was translated it was there uh, sometime in the post-exilic period I think is when the Old Testament took its final, Form uh, And as far as Job, the date of writing, we don't know, but it seems to be one of the older books in the Old Testament. So the entire Old Testament was written over a thousand year period from 1446 B.C. to roughly 400 B.C. So from the Pentateuch in the wilderness wanderings, as Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Job's in there somewhere, we don't really know. Uh, to the last prophet Malachi, the Old Testament was written. Uh, So it had to be after 400 B.C. to be, because the whole Old Testament wasn't written until then. So sometime between 400 to 285 B.C. is when the Old Testament came together as the 66 books we now know. So, good question. Wow. Talk about opening the gate. (laughs) So... But no, that's great. I love it. I I learn uh, learn by uh, dialogue. So, and if I don't know an answer to a question, I promise to make something up. So, uh, <laughs> so one of the things that we hope to discover through this whole study is why do we have so many different versions? I mean, have you ever wondered that? How did we get from yeah. God revealing the His Word through the quill of a, a, a human writer, on the sheepskin or papyrus or whatever it was to you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 English versions today. How do we get there, right? So to illustrate this um, and to re- illustrate the, the reality that our English Bibles are a translation of the original, right? The Bible was not written originally in English, okay? Sorry to disappoint. Uh-huh. Anybody that thought otherwise, I doubt that was anybody. But uh, nevertheless, we have some outstanding English translations of the Bible that accurately reflect what God revealed through the original autograph. Okay. Uh, we also have some not-so-great English translations. Uh, but to illustrate this, let's see how many English versions we have today. So I traditionally teach from the New King James. That's my kind of my favorite, if you will. But there are some good English translations out there. Does anybody in here have the New American Standard? Okay, good. So I'm going to use you for an illustration in a moment. Anybody have the NIV? I'll use you for a second. Okay, so just NIV, NASB. Anybody have the ESV? Okay, happy to hear that, by the way. But anyway, (laughs) um, anybody have uh, the uh, help me out? What else is out there? KJV. KJV, yeah, that's different from the New King James. Anybody have the KJV? Yeah. You do? All right, good. So you can be my KJV person. Any other translations? Anybody have the NLT, for example? What do you have? NLT. Oh, you do? Okay, so let's use you then. All right, so I want everybody, and you can all play along, but I want everybody to look up, to start with, let's go to Acts um, 8. Thirty-seven, And don't read anything until I call on you. Uh, Anybody have the new King James? You might as well have someone besides me read it. Sally, you want to be my new King James person? So we'll start with you. If you would read loudly Acts 837. That's okay. No, that's good. I put you on the spot, didn't I? You didn't bring your readers. And and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right, NASB. Who was that? Up here, I think, right? And Philip said... If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right. King James. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Excellent. So... The New King, I mean, the King James, you can hear the Elizabethan sort of flair to it, but same basic word order in general. And then NLT. So 37 is missing. What? But then you click on a little thing on here that says some manuscripts add verse 37. All right, so in your NLT, you're doing a digital Bible, I take it. So it goes from verse 36 to what? 38. Okay. From verse 36 to verse. Now, NIV. Who had that? Also, you um, said out in the text, but then down below it's in the foot. So, in your verses, it's, it, it goes from 36 to 38? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, anybody know why that is? So, the so the King James came from Textus Receptus, and then NIV I think, came from Codex Sinaiticus. And that one didn't have it. And then, let do see, I don't, I'm not sure what um, NASB. Same thing. So, excellent. Those are So he answered that the King James came from the Textus Receptus. And what he's talking about is the original Greek, because we're dealing with the New Testament here, manuscripts. As we said, the Bible is not written in English, so they're translating from a Greek manuscript. Well, uh, we have thousands of fragments and copies of the, the New Testament dating from as far back as the third century A.D. And uh, when we go to translate an English Bible, we kind of have to decide which manuscript fragments do we use. And so these Bibles, the NIV, the, even the NASB, puts it in brackets, right? No, no, you were you were in, you were NIV. Doesn't the NASB put it in brackets? Verse thirty-seven. Yes. Yeah. So, because from the people who translate the NASB's perspective, that verse was not in there. So the NASB is, is kind of like, we're not sure, you know, some of the manuscripts don't have it. We're going to put it in, but we're going to put a note with it. The NIV, the NLT, they just leave it out altogether. And depending on which Bible you have, it may or may not include a note at the bottom where you could go find it. So, and by the way, that's not an isolated example. There are dozens and dozens of examples where if you're using an NIV and you look up a verse, it's not going to be there, right? Because in their estimation, it's not there. Now, why is that? Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get to the point where we understand that um, part of translating the Bible is evaluating the manuscripts that we have in our possession. And they're finding more all the time in archaeological digs and making informed decisions as to which one most likely represents the original. So we talked about this many months ago before, uh, back when we were talking about uh, the doctrine of salvation, we ended up unexpectedly spending a whole night on it. Uh, So we're going to get into more of that in more detail this time, but yeah. So the question is, for foreign language that is non-English, I should say, uh, translations, are they translating from the English or from the original text? It depends on the translation. Uh, There are a lot of English, I mean, a lot of Bible translations out there in other languages that are just simply translations of the King James. But there are also a lot of translations out there that are, uh, you know, Biblical scholars are taking the original manuscripts and translating them into the language of those people. So it just kind of depends. Um, so uh, we'll get into to more of that, but I just want you to recognize that um, there is, in my opinion, uh, and as a conservative Bible teacher, there are some English translations that are better than others. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is two things. Two things that you should consider when you choose an English Bible. One is, what manuscripts are they translating from? And the second is, what's their translation technique? In other words, are they just sort of paraphrasing, paraphrasing the general meaning, or are they trying to go word-for-word? Word? I believe uh, a good student of the Bible should use a, as much as possible word-for-word word translation. Uh, paraphrases are basically no different than commentaries. Uh, If I want to know what somebody thinks it means, I'll look at a commentary. When I'm reading the Bible, I want to know what it says. And then we will figure out, through using proper Bible study methods that we're going to be teaching for the next several weeks, what it means. So it's kind of like the difference between a Cliff's Notes and the original uh, play, you know. You can read the Cliff's Notes of Romeo and Juliet, or you can read Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I think a paraphrase translation uh, and some... Are more paraphrastic than others uh, is is fine for devotional reading, but it's probably not the best for serious study. So, and just to let you know up front, I didn't mean to get into all this up front, but the to me the best translations for word for word just serious study are New King James and New American Standard. Um, I, for various reasons, some of the other modern translations have some of the, have some drawbacks, but uh, but either way, they're all they're all uh, translations and. You know if all you have is an NIV read it it's still the Word of God and it's still going the spirit of God's going to use it and uh, and so forth so uh, so the purpose then of this series is really three things first of all I want everybody to understand the supernatural character and value of the Bible and then secondly and obviously from the title of the series how to know and underst- how to read and understand the Bible we want you to know how to study it What's the what's the proper way to study the Bible? But ultimately, the goal is to strengthen our faith in the God of the Bible. That's the goal. It's never about just intellectual knowledge. It's about uh, changed lives, right? It's about changing our life. So any belief system is only as good as the foundation upon which it rests. And in a conversation I had recently, uh, someone was... Uh, quoting Jesus and at the same time being critical of the Bible because of all the errors it has. And so I was able to graciously point out, well, do you believe Jesus is a liar? Well, no, of course not. Well, you know He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. You know He said, if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You know that He said, for God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him... Should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, you know, a a lot of times people will unknowingly try to pick and choose parts of the Bible that they think make sense, but yet, because they've heard it so many times, dismiss the whole thing as just some mystical rambling book that nobody really agrees about, and it's, you know, it's not helpful. So what I want to do tonight is to walk you through uh, a chart that I've used for years in the classroom. I don't think we've ever done that in here uh, in, in, at Plum Creek, but it answers the question why do you believe what you believe? In uh, the theological and philosophical circles, this is what's known as epistemology, right? Why do you believe what you believe? And um, I tell you, You know, I've said often, and I believe it very strongly, that if you take the average person, and if it were possible to peel back their scalp and look in their brain, we would find that their overall worldview is a vast collection of hundreds of inputs that they have had through the years from all across the board. We believe one thing because our parents taught us. We believe another thing because we read a good book one time. We believe another thing because our pastor said it. We believe another thing because our seventh grade biology teacher said it. And, and we just pick up things, and we just add layer upon layer upon layer, and it's, a, it's really a convoluted mess. And the goal of epistemology or the goal of, of walking you through this chart is to show you that we need to be intellectually honest enough to recognize when there are inconsistencies in our belief system, we've got to correct that. We've got to strip away the things that don't fit. So there's got to be one ultimate standard. So what I'm going to do is walk us through five broad categories of uh, reasons people believe what they believe, And then, ultimately, the one and only reason you should believe what you believe. So let's talk first about sociological influences. Many people believe what they believe, and this is probably the biggest category, based on sociological influences. And I've been using this chart for 20 years, but especially in this day and age of social media, it has become an even more profound influence on our belief system, because people see something on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, and instantly they incorporate it into their belief system. Now, many times they'll reject it because there's lots of competing views. You know, so you take, for example, the whole pandemic issue. There are people that are on each side of the debate, but if they see something on social media that resonates with them, they'll bring it in and put it into their layers of their belief system. But social influences are huge. So, for example, people will believe what they believe uh, because their parents taught them, right? Now, let me uh, stop for a second and uh, ask this question. Is there anything wrong in and of itself with parents influencing their children in what they believe? No, right? That should be a clear no. In fact, as believers, we know the Bible says that parents should train their children up in the Lord, right? So as we go through these, I'm not suggesting that in and of themselves these things are wrong. What I'm suggesting is we need to be aware that they could be wrong and they are not ultimately the arbiter of truth or error. So another, another way to say that is so long as what your parents are teaching you aligns with God's Word, it's great. Parents are doing their job. But to say, I believe this because mom said so or dad said so, that's not the reason. It's okay to say mom or dad taught me this, but the reason I believe it is because God's Word teaches it, that, it's, that it's, it doesn't conflict with the principles of God's Word. Does that make sense? So we could think of other examples in the sociological category, friends, society in general, obviously where you grow up, uh, your culture makes a difference. You know, if you grew up in a third world country, you're going to have certain beliefs that maybe you don't have if you were in a more educated uh, society. Frankly, looking at the American education system, you probably have better beliefs in a third world country. Uh, What about tradition? That falls into the category of sociological influences. So, I mean, you've all heard me talk about kind of my upbringing. And so I was blessed to grow up in a Christian family. And for most of my formative years, uh, all the way through high school, we were in Baptist churches. We moved a lot. But we were—I was saved when we were at a uh, Garb Church, General Association of Regular Baptists, is what's called. Um, uh, We—I've uh, been in Southern Baptist churches, so I kind of grew up in a Baptist uh, culture. Uh, I also grew up in a conservative culture, in a Republican culture. I can remember going way back. The first election I really remember is Ford Carter, and then I really remember Reagan Carter, and. Um, That's when I really got involved or interested, I should say, in politics was uh, when Reagan was elected and was shot a few months later after taking office. He actually was shot on my birthday, March 30th, so it just really left an indelible memory uh, for me. So, so far I've got, you know, Baptist, Republican, and then I almost forgot the the most important by far influence of my family as I grew up from the time I was in diapers being a Dallas Cowboys fan, and some of my fondest memories uh, are, you know, watching the Cowboys with my dad, and it was always a really special time, especially when they were on Monday night football, which when I was young was all the time, because they were good, <laughs> so they would frequently get the prime time Monday night football spot, and uh, I, on those nights, I got to stay up late, past my bedtime, to watch the Cowboys. Um, uh, we were diehard fans, and I, and I learned that from uh, my dad we went to the first ever game played at the old they've got a whole new stadium now but at the time it was brand new the first game ever played at the meadowland stadium in new york when the cowboys played the giants of course we were rooting for the cowboys right um, i uh, can remember in when we moved to texas when i was in high school i was real involved in uh, our southern large southern baptist church there and so i on sundays i would have to be there at 3:30 in the afternoon for ensemble, youth ensemble, which I was a part of that. 4.30 was youth choir, which we had about 100 kids in the youth choir. 5.30 was what they used to call training union, uh, which was like a Sunday night Sunday school. And then 6.30 was the evening service. So I was there for four different sessions. So if the Cowboys played the late game, I left before the game even started. And this was way before cell phones or any other type of way to know it. I would try to sneak out and listen on the radio as going from ensemble to youth choir to to whatever. But uh, inevitably what I would have to do on those Sundays when the Cowboys played the late game is at this particular church, not only did we have a Sunday night service, but we had a Sunday night choir, and the the adult choir would sing. And so my dad was in the choir. And he would, uh, as we would come out of training union discipleship and into the, the auditorium for the Sunday evening service, I would look at my dad in the choir, and he would give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down as to whether the Cowboys won or lost. And if it was thumbs down, forget it. I was in the flesh. The rest of the service didn't care anything the pastor said. I was just bummed, you know. So, but man, I grew up really thinking you had to be three things to get to heaven. You know, a Baptist, a Republican, and a Dallas Cowboys fan. So, and of course, as I matured in the faith, I realized only one of those is true. So, um, but the point is, when I went to seminary as a young college graduate straight out of college and sat in class learning different books of the Bible and learning theological systems and when when the professor asked a question, you know, why do you believe this? It was not enough for me to say because my parents taught me. They, they, he wanted to know what does the Bible say? And so we need to be aware of those influences in our life that are sociological and run them through the grid of Scripture. And if the Bible supports them, keep them in your worldview, keep them in your grid, right? But if not, no disrespect to our parents or to anyone else, uh, we need to get rid of them. So the point is, this column of sociological influence is not ultimately a valid arbiter basis for truth or falsehood. You with me? It can be, but it's not the ultimate standard, right? So then, keeping in line with this approach, we could think of some psychological influences in our belief system. Uh, Often, we believe things because they bring us comfort or peace of mind. Uh, We we think they make sense. In other words, they, they have meaning or purpose to us. Sometimes, we believe things because they give us hope uh, ultimately, under psychological influences, it's it's based on feelings and experience, right? We we uh, we hold our beliefs experientially rather than empirically, based on some ultimate standard. And often, this has to do with counselors, which you could put counselors under sociological or psychological. But uh, the point is. These psychological influences often emanate from sociological relationships, right? So, uh, but we, I've run into this a lot, I'm sure you have too, where people will hold their beliefs for, if we're honest, and you maybe wouldn't say this to them for fear of offending them, but for irrational reasons. In other words, they're, uh, I remember uh, preaching one time, at a, this was years ago, at a church in uh, Olympia, Washington. And I don't remember what I was speaking about, but in some uh, point in the, in the lecture, I got off on a rabbit trail, which is usually when I get in trouble. And I talked about animals and how uh, your pet dog doesn't have a soul, and if your pet dog dies, it's not going to heaven. Well, someone came up to me afterwards, uh, rather troubled by that, disagreeing with me. And she said... I know my dog, whatever the dog's name was, is in heaven, and I said, well, how do you know? She said, well, I had a dream, and God revealed it to me in a dream. Well, that's psychological, right? So we don't interpret the Bible in light of our experiences, and anything that our experiences tell us is right, but the Bible disagrees with, we rip that part out. We have to interpret our experience through the Bible. Because as we're going to see, it's the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So there are many things that we want to believe because it makes us feel good. But we need to ask the question, does it really agree with the teaching of God's word? And if not, those things need to be stripped away as well. So psychological influences are not ultimately a valid basis to believe what you believe. As with sociological influences, they can be. But in and of themselves, it's no guarantee, right? Uh, And then there's obviously theological influences, which uh, may not seem like a big category to you, but to a guy like me, it's big, right? So a lot of people hold their beliefs based on a theological system rather than what does the Bible say. And this is an ongoing challenge throughout our lives, is to make sure that We believe something not just because the pastor said it or the church teaches it in the case of Roman Catholicism, for example. There are a lot of teachings of Roman Catholicism that are absolutely contradicted in God's word, right? Uh, And same thing with not just the church the way Roman Catholicism defines it, but the evangelical church as well, right? Um, A lot of churches worship, whether they would admit it or not, a pastor... And and, and anything that disagrees with what their pastor said, they don't want to hear it. It's called a cult of personality. Um, Or your theological system. People believe what they believe because they're a Calvinist, or they're an Arminian, or they're a charismatic, or they're a dispensationalist, or they're a, you name it, right? A Wesleyan, you know, a Pentecostal, uh, a Presbyterian, you know. So our theological system, there's a place for it, In fact, ultimately, understanding the Bible comes down to once you've correctly handled it and come to the accurate interpretation, building your doctrinal statement around that. And so it's helpful. Labels can be helpful, right? If someone says, I'm a Calvinist, I know a few things about that person, right? So it's not that, just like with the other two categories, these types of things are in and of themselves wrong. It's just... We want to be biblicists first, and you know whatever it is—dispensationalists, Calvinists—or hope you're never a Calvinist—but dispensationalists second, right? Um, so the theological influences are, are really a formidable foe because I think a lot of students of Scripture can easily get their head around sociological and psychological influences, and they get that yeah some of these can point us in the right direction. If you've got good biblical Christian parents, then yeah they are a positive influence. But ultimately, we don't want to base our beliefs on that. But when you come to theological influences, it's hard for people to recognize that, you know, your pastor could be wrong. Now, I know it's not hard for you to recognize that. Uh, but uh, and, and, and certainly uh, it's, it's true that uh, your pastors are not infallible, right? Uh, same thing is true of other non-Christian religions. You know, you don't base your beliefs on what a single religious leader says. You, you base them on the Bible. So that's theological influences. Uh, and then we've got two more. Um, and this is a one that I think will be interesting. But some people uh, are extremely intelligent, extremely rational, and they love to argue based on philosophical laws of reason. And so they, and this is, this is true not just of non-Christian skeptics, uh, and philosophers, but even Christian apologists who believe the Bible, they've trusted in Christ as their savior, they understand the value of the word of God, but they, whether they realize it or not or intend to or not, they elevate feel, philosophical reasoning to a level of supremacy without realizing it. So in other words, you'll hear people say, you know, anything that uh, violates the law of consistency is, is, or the law of non-contradiction is the technical name of the law. Is wrong or anything that doesn't that isn't coherent is wrong, it's got to be rational, it's got to be based on sound reasoning and logic, right? That's what they'll say. Well, that's certainly true, and even as we're going to see in this series, studying the Word of God uses basic fundamental principles of logic, right? We don't arbitrarily start with chapter 3 and read backwards. We start logically with chapter 1, 2, 3, and so forth. And rules of grammar, subjects and nouns and predicates and objects are logical, based on logic. So as with the other categories, there's nothing in and of themselves wrong with these reasons to believe something, unless they contradict the Bible. So here's where the problem creeps in. Based on philosophical argumentation, people have, over the years, rejected many of the teachings of the Bible, such as young earth and the story of Adam and Eve. Well, that's not logical. It's not logical, you know, they say, for uh, the earth to only be 6,000 years old, right? So that part must be not be true. And they strip it out. Or it's not possible for the whole earth to be covered in every high mountain in floodwaters. So it must have just been a, local flood or it's not logical if you get to extreme liberalism for which by the way those views are slippery slopes to liberalism right started in the early 20th century with the rise of higher criticism really in the late 19th century but it really gained steam in the early 20th century and people were rejecting uh, young earth creationism people were rejecting a literal Adam and Eve they were rejecting a literal global flood first thing you know they're rejecting the deity of Christ rejecting a resurrection, and all these other beliefs. But anyway, uh, when you come to logic, it's not logical for a virgin to have a child, for example. Right? But it's true. Why is it true? Because the Bible says so. So again, logic has its place, but it's not the ultimate arbiter of what's right and wrong. And that's why when I teach apologetics, which I haven't for several years, but when I was teaching full time, uh, I, I would espouse the approach to what's, uh, to apologetics called uh, uh, presuppositionalism, not rationalism or, or evidentialism or any of these others. I think rationalism, which is basically these kinds of arguments, has its place, and it can be helpful to show someone the logical contradiction in their belief, show them their logical fallacies, which are very common in arguments. That's, that's a great, valid tool. But ultimately, when it comes to evangelism... You can't argue somebody into the faith. You just can't do it. The Holy Spirit has to use the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it, to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And they have to make the conscious volitional choice to believe in Jesus Christ. If their their belief is based on argumentation, then there's always the risk that someone's going to come along and make a better argument. right? So this one's a little bit tricky i hope you're kind of tracking with me what i'm trying to communicate anyway is that we do need to use logic it's not helpful to be illogical uh, even in studying the bible we do need to use sound reasoning Uh, we need to be rational human beings in our communication but god is the ultimate arbiter of what's right and wrong and if god wants to allow the sun to stand still for a day or the whole earth to be flooded or the red to apart, or a huge whale to swallow a human being for three days and he lives to tell about it. God can do that, because God's God and we're not. So we have to understand that these two are not ultimately the basis to believe what you believe. And then somewhere along the way in my teaching this, I added this fifth column, which inevitably steps on toes, but I do it anyway, and that is political influences, right? Remember I said I grew up, you know, being a Republican. Well, a lot of people hold their beliefs based on their political affiliation, whether they're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, Green Party, Constitution, you name it. Um, By the way, if you're listening to this and you're affiliated with the Green Party, let me refer you back to the previous column on trying to be rational and logical, okay? Because you have some serious flaws in your (laughs) viewpoint. But in any event, Obviously, I think we know, and if there's anything we learned from that study on spirit of the Antichrist and the fake right-left paradigm and the contrived right-left paradigm and fake news and all that, it's that these are certainly not valid reasons uh, to believe uh, what we believe. So where does that leave us? Well, the the, the final category is biblical reasons. And really, the only question that should, should matter when seeking the truth is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? That's that's the ultimate arbiter of truth. And because that's the case, it really does make a difference, and hopefully you can see that now, how you study the Word of God. Because the Bible is only as valuable as it is correctly handled. So there have been no shortage of examples uh, through the years of People using and abusing the word of God, to for nefarious means. It was happening in the first century. Paul addressed it. I'm one of the messages I'm going to be sharing next week in Duluth is from Second Peter chapter two. At the pastors' conference, I've got assigned Second Peter chapter two. At the full conference with everybody, I've got Revelation 14 to 16. But Second Peter two talks about uh, P, false teachers who within the church were using and abusing their teaching for a personal gain and so forth so you can think of the Jim Joneses of the world and people like that so uh, the old so so we've got to correctly handle this so it's not enough just to say I believe the Bible and that and that's where the argument breaks down and that's where I get uh, you know this question all the time as to why you know people who both value the Bible can come up with different opinions. You know, different interpretations. Hey, they both believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. He believes the Bible. I believe the Bible. She believes the Bible. But yet they come up with vastly different interpretations. So what's the difference? It's not enough just to understand and value the Bible as God's revealed Word. We've got to handle it correctly. And that's what we're going to begin diving into next week. But I'll leave you with, or next time, with with sort of an illustration of that question. How can people who all value the authority and the word of God come away with vastly different interpretations. See, it's not, when we disagree with someone, and, and I've learned this through years of teaching in an academic setting, if I have a different opinion, like say Calvinists, and, and, and you'll hear me say this a lot when I'm critiquing Calvinism. These are men of God, they love the Lord, they're no doubt born again, and they value his word. I just have an honest disagreement with them. Why? Because we are coming at the Bible from completely different methods or rules of interpretation. And we'll talk about what they are, but it all depends on your perspective. So uh, some of you may have seen this before, but what do you see here on the screen? Just describe it. A A princess, that's a good way, maybe a queen, beautiful lady, right? What's that? She has a crown. crown. Good. Now, let me just show you a different perspective on the same exact uh, picture. Now, what do you see? (laughs) Completely different, right? Same picture, completely different perspective. So, it all depends on your perspective. And the same thing is true of the Word of God. We're all coming to the same Bible, but if we're not using the same basic principles of interpretation we're going to see something vastly different agreed so uh, we'll stop there if anybody has any quick closing questions we can do those but i want to wrap up it went by fast but yeah So that's a great question. The question is, when we talk about those churches and pastors that neglect the teaching of the end times, which as I've suggested, it roughly represents 16% of the Bible. So I've called those people that that never teach about the end times, I've called them the 84% club because they're only teaching 84% of the Bible. The question is, is that a perspective issue or what was it? Or is it? What what is that? Yeah, so for that, I think um, it's hard to kind of put that in one of these categories because presumably they believe the Bible is the standard. They're just not uh, correctly handling it. And really it it becomes a perspective issue because it's a how are they studying it. They've convinced themselves that certain passages have a mystical figurative, symbolic meaning that goes beyond the words on the page. So therefore, they equate, say, for example, Israel and the church. They equate the rapture and the second coming. They think that we're living in the kingdom. It's a kingdom now. So it has to do with how they interpret Scripture. It's not that they are uh, disrespectful of the Word of God or, or liberal in the sense that they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They just have a, a perspective uh, issue, uh, like we talked about, You know, here, there, instead of uh, instead of looking at it accurately and coming up with the full, wonderful, divinely inspired picture of God's word, by leaving part of it out and by connecting dots that don't connect, they've got a less than admirable picture. Good question. Yeah. So we're hundred percenters. We're hundred percenters. That's right. We teach all of the Bible. Uh, I know some of you are thinking, well. If they're the 84% club, Hickson must be the 16% club. It seems like all he ever talks about is the end times. But uh, uh, guilty as charged, uh, I do love that subject. and uh, But I do try to keep it in balance. Uh, Sunday mornings, uh, we've gone through Hebrews, and now we're going through Psalms. And Wednesday nights, of course, now we're going through how to read and understand the Bible. But uh, all right, any other questions? All right, well, let's uh, close out. You're dismissed, and we'll, again, see you in two weeks. I apologize. Pray for us as we travel up to Duluth Uh, next week. That conference is going to be live streamed. I don't have the details yet, but as soon as I do, I'll send out an email in case anybody wants to watch it Wednesday night or uh, or uh, Saturday night. I'm sorry, Wednesday night or Friday night are my two uh, nights. Okay. Thanks. Have a great uh, rest of the night.